Welcome to this ChangeBoard Future Talent Podcast. I'm Jim Carrick-Burtwell, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of ChangeBoard. Today we present Tom Watson's keynote speech from ChangeBoard's Future Talent Conference in 2017. Elected as Deputy Leader of the Labour Party in 2015, Tom first entered frontline politics as the Minister for Digital Engagement under Gordon Brown's government. In 2016, Tom founded the Future of Work Commission, a cross-party initiative that draws on the professional opinions of technology business leaders to examine the trends affecting the workplace. Tom's keynote speech explores the impact that AI and machine learning will have on society. Recorded the day after the triggering of Article 50, Tom's talk was a reminder of the constant change we're currently experiencing. Well, uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me at your conference today. Uh, and thank you for introducing me as the deputy leader of my party. I'm a Labour politician, but I'm not here today as a politician, or, or not just for that reason. In fact, I'm here, really, because I'm a, mem- I'm a former member of Hall University Rugby Club, uh, and, and our most accomplished player was Porter Keane, founder of Changeboard. So... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't really say no to him then, and I couldn't say no to him uh, now. So, Porter, th- thank you uh, to you and Jim for inviting me to speak today. Uh, but I know that's not why you really invited me. You really invited me because you know I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, and that's really why I'm here. I, I was the first MP to blog. I was the first and only digital engagement minister under Gordon Brown. I had an iPod when digitising your music library involved sticking CDs into a computer and sticking it on the machine. The point is, I'm instinctively optimistic about uh, technology and the opportunity it creates. So when it comes to robots, artificial intelligence, big data, super processing power, the conglomeration of change that's been dubbed the fourth industrial revolution... I honestly can't wait to see it unfold. I can't, see, can't wait to see what humans invent next. But I also know there can be a downside to technological innovation, especially in the short term. History shows us that. It shows us generally always a human price to pay for technological change. Look at the last industrial revolution that ushered in an era of railways, bringing towns and cities closer together, creating new industries and new jobs. It changed our great conurbations forever in ways that are still visible today. A combination of private enterprise, municipal leadership, created the great new buildings, civic spaces, libraries and universities we take for granted today. But industrialisation also caused a dramatic rise in the urban population, overcrowding, Poverty and hardship became synonymous with the great Victorian cities that grew wealthy on the back of the new industries and trades. Next to every chimney stack was a slum and a factory, children who had no choice but to work. And it was only through intervention of the state, often working hand-in-hand with social reformers and enlightened industrialists, that the excesses of the industrial age were reined in. The point I'm making is that we can't stand in the way of technological change, but we can manage it if we work together. 
The same is true of the revolution we're seeing today. The potential gains of automation are huge, but the downsides cannot be underestimated either. Many of you in this room will be familiar with that 2015 Bank of America report that warned that up to a third of British workers were at risk of displacement by technology over the next 20 years. Just last week, research from PricewaterhouseCoopers echoed those figures. It said that 30% of jobs will be put at risk by the 2030s, and in some sectors, like manufacturing, wholesale and retail, PwC said the figure is more likely to be 50%. Other estimates are less apocalyptic, but even the most conservative forecasts say millions of manufacturing jobs are likely to disappear worldwide and that entire professions are likely to be rendered obsolete with the changes we're seeing today. This is not just about robots assembling cars. It's about robots driving cars. And a recently invented robot radiographer analyzes X-rays more accurately and efficiently than its human counterparts. Now, that's good news for everyone unless you happen to be a highly trained radiographer. And as Stanford academic Jerry Kaplan has said, automation is blind to the colour of your collar. For the first time last year, more Americans filed their tax returns using computer software than an accountant. Middle-class professionals in conveyancing or law face redundancy by algorithm. Some of the potential applications of new technology sound like they've been lifted straight out of the pages of a dystopian sci-fi novel. On Wednesday, only this week, I read that South African tech billionaire Elon Musk plans to implant electrodes into human brains in order to connect them to computers. Musk believes this might be the only way to ensure we're not left behind by advances in artificial intelligence itself, and that will make robots infinitely more powerful than humans. Now, that might sound far-fetched, but in one sense, technology is already merging man and machine. Monitoring devices mean that for many people who work in logistics, those delivery drivers that are so common in our lives now, every journey is tracked every route mapped. They're unable to choose their own without risking uh, being censured by their managers who ask why they went off route. Driverless cars may render that problem a thing of the past, of course, assuming Uber and other manufacturers iron out their teething problems that caused one car to crash in Arizona dramatically last week. But the American Trucking Association estimate there are currently three and a half million truck drivers in America they could all be out of work in a generation's time. And if drones deliver as many goods in the future as vehicles do today, it could be that entire fleets of driverless delivery vans disappear a few years after that, because they've, even before they become a familiar sight on our roads. Daniel Suskind, an academic and member of our Future Work Commission, and his father Richard, have argued that it's the traditional professions also which will bear the immediate impact in the rise of the machine. Doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, engineers, academics, managers. Why will we need a GP when a robot can read precisely the complexities of our physiologies and prescribe, manufacture and distribute 
the exact blends of medications we need? Why pay an accountant to do your taxes or run your accounts when a personalised software package can do it for you? We know that the roles of engineers and architects will change as computer-aided engineering systems create and test prototypes within seconds. It's possible that in 50 years, even management consultancy won't exist as a profession. <laughs> so it's not all bad news. It's a risky gag in an audience like this, I know. <laughs> and so the question for us today is how to master this change, how to avoid the fate of previous generations, how to make change our ally, not our foe. We can't predict with any certainty what changes automation will usher in or how quickly will they, they will take effect. But I would argue that we can be reasonably sure about the impact it will have on our economy and our society. My fear is that the digital revolution of the last 20 years, which concentrated power and wealth in the hands of a few, many of them in Silicon Valley, could be, re could be repeated on a far larger scale when automation and artificial intelligence becomes commonplace. Those beer moths of the digital age, Apple, Google, Facebook, make many billions of pounds profit, but employ a tiny number of people compared to the industrial giants of the past. Ford, the motor company, employs 200,000 people worldwide. It has a market value, last time I checked, of about $45 billion. Snapchat, which is currently valued at $25 billion, has fewer than 400 employees. Uber employs an army of drivers, but it enriches a tiny number of San Francisco-based executives, along with the small number of investors in the company. The risk is, is that the widespread adoption of automation and artificial intelligence creates a winner-takes-all economy in which the gains accumulate to those who create or own the technology, but the financial losses are borne by the people whose jobs are displaced or have to work for far less money. And we've seen that over the last 20 years, when we look at globalisation, which has done wonders for economic growth for this country and made us wealthy as a country, but not everyone has seen the benefits. And that's why one of the reasons that I would say that people have been voting for change in an, in an unusual way recently. Uh, not the kind of change that a politician from my wing of politics uh, would welcome. Yesterday, Alex Krotowski told me that she thought I looked like I was going to burst into tears on the telly when the Prime Minister triggered Article 50. In the States, they elected Donald Trump. Now, I, part of that is because I think we've failed to make sure that people are all benefiting from the changes we're seeing in our economy and in society. We have to ensure that the benefits of technological change are enjoyed by everyone, not just a tiny privileged few. I think our society is starting to uh, resemble an hourglass with room at the top for those with existing wealth and access to capital, and a wide flat base of lower paid jobs, but there's a hollowing out in the middle, the jobs in retail or high street banking, for example. Now, a society of affluent leaders 
and struggling workers, but little room in the middle for people uh, to move on and improve their lives, is not one that leads to stable political change. There are too many people who think they are powerless to act, and they wrap their powerlessness up in an economic and political libertarianism and pray to the gods of the free market and hope for the best. They eschew any role for government, reject any notion of an industrial strategy, or support for companies to innovate and grow. Some of those who hold that rather extreme view serve as ministers of the crown. You won't be surprised to know that as the deputy leader of the Labour Party, I have a very different view. There's a fundamental distinction I'd like to draw to you this morning between the interests of business and the interests of capital. Enterprise and hard work grow businesses that become employers and contribute to the fabric of society in many ways, social, cultural, as well as through taxation. Capital is a necessary element in economic activity, but slavish devotion to the recreation of money for money's sake will lead to a very dislocated and dysfunctional society when automated systems are doing most of the work. We need to concentrate on how we grow our economy, in which the value created and time saved by automation is shared more equally, and not just used to enrich an already very wealthy and powerful elite. One of my pre predecessors, the first ever arts minister, Jenny Lee, when she uh, was responsible for the first ever White's paper in 1965, she mapped some of this out back then. She wrote that in an age of increasing automation, bringing more leisure to more people than ever before, both young and old will increasingly need the stimulus and refreshment that the arts can bring. The fear then was that automation would lead to so much leisure time that people wouldn't have enough things to do. Well, it didn't quite work out like that, did it? But the fear now is that it will put people out of work. And the opportunities for leisure and cultural enrichment are enormous with all the time saved through automation. But they'll be lost if that fundamental model of the economy is not changed, shaped and reformed. So there's a, part, there's a lesson, not just for my party in this, for all political parties... We need to be on the size of small and medium-sized enterprises that form the lifeblood of our real economy. And we really need to mean it. Just as the great capitalists of the last Industrial Revolution realised they needed to build homes and provide health care to their workers, so too will the businesses and the business owners of the future have to adapt where the world, of, uh, uh, the world is dramatically changed and productivity is dramatically improved through automation. And they'll need the empowering state by their side, in partnership, to deal with those challenges. That's why I set up the Future of Work Commission last year to e examine the effects of the fourth industrial revolution on the workplace. It will help my party assess what the future public policy challenges are. And I hope it will allow policymakers to make more informed decisions based on the latest available evidence. My co-chair, Helen Mountfield QC, is an expert in employment and public law. Other commissioners include Harvard University's Professor of Government Theory, Michael Sandel, 
Naomi Clymer, the former president of the Institute of Engineering and Technology. Claire McCarthy, the general secretary of the Cooperative Party. And Daniel Suskind, who I mentioned earlier. We're halfway through a process of gathering evidence, and it's been a fascinating experience. We heard recently about new tracking technology used in warehouses. Watch scanners monitor how long employees take it in the loo or whether they've stopped to talk to another worker. Algorithms set targets for people to meet regardless of age or ability. And the computer programs decide how best to meet those targets, deciding routes and planning schedules. Computers, not even clever ones, are doing away with meaningful, meaningful choice on the part of the worker. Like the delivery drivers I mentioned, who are reluctant to choose the quickest route because their journeys are monitored by tracking devices. They are extracting every last drop of effort from workers in a way that hasn't previously been possible. It's intrusive and it's dehumanizing. It may be good for productivity, but it's bad for job satisfaction and terrible for mental health. So as I said at the start of this speech, I'm instinctively optimistic about technology. And it's worth remembering that the authors of the Bank of, Ameri Bank of America report I mentioned pointed out that humans have always, nearly always benefited from technological advances. In its own work on automation, Deloitte pointed out that technology has historically created more jobs than it destroyed. But to harness the benefits, we may need to fundamentally overhaul how we educate our children. When my young daughter was born less than a decade ago, I expected her to learn to code in school. But by the time she leaves school, algorithms will be taking those jobs away. The pace of change is so rapid that we need to teach children new ways of learning as well as giving them the knowledge they need to get on in life. If the machines of the future are carrying out many of the jobs humans do today, it could be that schools need to teach collaborative working and team-building schools better. It could be that there needs to be greater emphasis on emotional intelligence rather than just knowledge capture. It may be that we need to measure and test our children differently and more effectively. And it seems certain that in a world where work is changing rapidly and in unpredictable ways, lifelong learning is something most advanced countries will have to scale up and do differently and be really committed to. Schools and universities need to turn out resilient, adaptable individuals for this new world. Lifelong learners who can cope with change and are happy returning to education to reskill and learn and taking new knowledge. We need to develop pupils' creativity and emotional intelligence because those are hard to automate. They're key human characteristics. The Commission has also heard about how artificial intelligence could transform education. Now, one witness told us about how an AI system could accurately monitor students' progress, recognise their achievements and where they need extra help in a, in a way our current system cannot currently cater for. And not just that, but how it could connect with the jobs market to identify skills gaps, how it could then tailor students' education and training to produce workers who fill those gaps. And as we heard, the biggest obstacle to making that kind of agile 
responsive system a reality isn't money. It's in the hearts and minds of teachers, pupils, parents, and ministers. Because it would involve interaction with technology, data collection on a massive scale, and people are very wary about that. The U- that the UK hasn't yet had a big public conversation about technology, about how we regulate it, what we want to do with it, how we'll allow and what we won't allow the things that technology can do. We do need a big conversation about that. Currently, we're dealing with things in a piecemeal way, but soon that's not going to be good enough because the rate of innovation, and here I'm quoting from that Bank of America report again, has gone from linear to parabolic. Our existing systems just won't be able to absorb the change of pace, the pace of change we're seeing. There are going to be more new business models that use new technology, like Uber and Amazon and Upwork, that challenge and sidestep existing employment law. Driverless vehicles aren't just going to slot neatly into existing car regulations. Our tech system isn't going to, is going to come under strain. What do we do when a robot starts doing the job previously a, a, previously a human earned £40,000 a year for doing? Do we tax the robot? Bill Gates thinks we should, and then use that money to retrain the displaced person. I'm actually not persuaded by that particular argument, but I am persuaded that he's doing the right thing by identifying the problems and considering radical solutions. The only way to allay anxiety about these and other major changes in our society, and in so doing allow them to reach their full potential, is to set out a persuasive evidence-based positive vision for the future and the future of work. Being who I am in politics, I'm evidently not going to attempt to stand in the way of progress, but I do believe in changing, in choosing what counts as progress. The public need to be reassured that technology can be, that it's going to be used in ways that benefit us all. That's what the Future of Work Commission is trying to do. And I know your conference is concentrating on on this, and next year you're talking about the fourth industrial revolution as well. I'd love to come back then and hear what you've got to say. So to conclude, automation has the potential to liberate us from the more mundane aspects of work. It could mean many of us can spend less time doing jobs we don't like. It could make the gains that we have historically accrued to the few available to the many. It could mean wealth and opportunity is shared and toil is reduced. It could, in short, lead to a fairer, healthier, more informed and kinder society. That's the sort of society which my party was was founded to create. And I'm going to end on that point and take some questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this ChangeBoard Future Talent podcast. To register for your place at this year's Future Talent Conference on March the 22nd in London, where we'll explore the theme Skills to Thrive in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, visit ftconference.changeboard.com.